It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Slate Political Gap Fest is brought to you by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click, and it has an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com GABFEST. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 19th, 2016, the I Have a Gun and Her Name is America edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in New York City this week. I am alone. But John Dickerson, John Dickerson, you have man, you're manning the fort back in Washington at our new studio, right? I'm not, yeah, I'm not only manning the fort. I am ensconced in the new fort, which every time we move locations it gets better, and this uh, this recording studio is a wonder. It's a marvel. There's felt of different colors on the walls. There's a window so that we can see uh, into our, the producers and engineers in the next room. Wow. Microphones have dots with colors on them, color-coded. There are plenty of outlets. It's... Uh, it's basically John. I can't even. It's as, you, it's as though I don't even understand what you're saying. It's as though you've described something to someone who's never seen stairs before, or never, <laughs> never uh, been, you know, been in a city. I don't even know what you mean by when you say these words. Yeah, no, I know. This I week they captured it. the sound of a black hole collapsing, and we got this studio. Two real developments in the history of mankind wow if if we keep getting better i can't even imagine what the next studio will be like it is it'll be it'll be be tremendous that is john dickerson of course of face the nation emily bazelon we heard her voice emily bazelon of the new york times magazine are you in new haven emily hello i am there is no studio here just my nice window that i'm looking out that seems nice on this week's GabFest, what a GabFest we've got for you. This is a great week. Wow. The fight over Scalia's seat on the Supreme Court. Will President Obama make a nomination? Yes. Whom will he nominate? Will Republicans give the nominee a hearing? And who will benefit from the political standoff that is going to result from all of this? Not America. America will not benefit, but someone will benefit politically. Then we'll go back to our favorite subject, the Republican race, with Trump and Bush smacking each other around about 9-11 and George W. Bush and the South Carolina primary. Uh, And also Jeb tweeted a picture of his handgun, so we can talk about that as well. Then we will go into the Apple versus FBI face-off. Will Aremis, Slate's technology writer, will join us. 
How dare Apple resist a lawful court order to help fight terrorism? How dare they? We will have cocktail chatter also. And in Slate Plus, John is going to give us a behind-the-scenes, some behind-the-scenes tidbits, some bits about how he prepared for his thrilling South Carolina Republican debate that was on TV last Saturday night, which is how I spent my Saturday night. Is that how you spent your Saturday night, Emily? Yes, this week, absolutely. I was completely excited about it, though I also had to quickly write about the Scalia vacancy, which made things a little more harried than I would have liked. But it was all very exciting. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. So the Scalia vacancy, Justice Antonin Scalia will be buried on Saturday. President Obama will not attend the funeral, although he will will, uh, visit Scalia in repose on Friday. The conservative justice has been lionized and criticized, but much brooded about, much discussed. Now we move on to the fight to replace him, which promises to be endless, vicious, and horrible. President Obama says he will fulfill his constitutional obligation by nominating someone to replace Scalia. Republicans in the Senate say they will fulfill their constitutional obligation by advising and not consenting to whoever it is the president nominates. Republicans are making it clear that whoever he nominates has no chance and that whatever's either they won't get a hearing or if they get a hearing, they're not going to get through and that this nomination is going to get kicked forward to the next administration. So, Emily, what is so wrong? I find myself puzzled. What is so wrong about not passing a nominee? I understand the cynicism of of saying flat out we're not even going to consider anyone, but it's a huge issue. Why not? uh, Why shouldn't the Republicans extract as much political benefit from it as possible. Oh, I don't think the Republicans are doing anything unexpected. And I think that it is good politics for them to have a big fight over this nomination. I do think that coming out of the gate and saying that no one will get be considered and that this should be a choice of the next president, that seems to me to be neither constitutionally super supportable nor actually good politics right like the smart argument is this is a big seat we want to take a close look at this person and see what we think of them the much more i I mean troubling is strong but the the argument that does i think has more people perplexed and apoplectic is this president somehow doesn't have the right in the last year of his second term of office to choose anyone. That's not like that's not just not what the Constitution says. And that makes me feel like the Republicans actually aren't doing either the advising or the consenting. They're just like, well, they're advising. They're like, I advise you not to advise you not to nominate anyone. That is not like that's a kind of that's not in the text. Like if we were having an originalist debate about this, as Justice Scalia would want us to do, that part would be hard to defend. Saying we don't want we don't agree like and there's lots of precedent for um, senators voting against nominees whom they ideologically just don't agree with and don't like that part completely plausible and supportable. I just think they started off on this like super aggressive foot. And I understand why Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and even Marco Rubio said that, but I'm not sure that I think Mitch McConnell, I don't think that senators played this in the either most structurally, you know, government smart way or the politically smart way. Well, John, what are the politics for Republicans, both at the presidential level and then at the individual Senate race level of either not having hearings, having hearings. So there are at least five, maybe more, depending on um, 
Senate Republicans in blue states who are up in 2016. And if this becomes a story about Republican obstructionism, if this becomes a story in which Democrats get excited about being denied their choice, their chance to have a majority on the court, that could hurt those senators potentially. Or, back to Emily's point, the idea that the Senate wouldn't even, that the first instinct in the Senate from the majority leader was, I'm not going to consider anything, anytime, no how, nowhere. I mean, within an hour and a half or so of Scalia, of the announcement of Scalia's death, the first move was no way, no how, which echoes back to Mitch McConnell's comments about you know, his number one job being denying Barack Obama a re-election. That kind of cements obstructionism in a way that will be a problem or could be a problem for those senators. And that's what's causing the kind of potential rethinking of how to approach this on the part of the on the part of the Republicans. The the strategy, though, from saying no way, no how immediately was to try to sort of have first movers advantage to try and create a notion that like it was so out of bounds for the president to put anybody forward that that became conventional wisdom. That didn't quite take because it, it was insane. To, it doesn't appear. Well, it doesn't appear to have taken. Right. Well, um, it does seem both sides. Right. Chuck Schumer in 2007 said he would do the same thing if George Bush was in the position. Like nobody's clean on this. Oh, absolutely. But, completely. But agree. nobody's clean. But there's no like you have to torture it. If you're whether you're Schumer in 2007 or you're McConnell now, you have to do some backbends to try and you know make the case for why this shouldn't go forward. Now, as you quite rightly pointed out. That it would be normal for it to go forward and then have the Republicans, you know, kill it on its merits how, if they were good. Emily, how if if the president puts forward someone like like Sri Srinivasan, who was approved to the appeals court, the ninety seven zero ninety seven to nothing just a couple of years ago, obviously qualify clerk for conservative justices. It's clear that if that if he's President Obama's nominee, he's not. No one is going to get approved. As a Supreme Court justice this year, it's it's I'll take any bet, any odds that no one gets approved as a Supreme Court justice this year. But let's say you put forward a, a Sri Srinivasan. How exactly does that candidacy go down? We learn a lot about Sri Srinivasan, his person, his professional record, how much of a case is there that he's a liberal versus a moderate. And the Republicans have to make a case against him. Which is the, how but, this is supposed to work. That but let's makes just, sense I know, to me. Like, they I, ask him questions. They find things to pick uh, over him about. And if he really persuades the country, if the administration is able to persuade the country that he or someone else would be a great Supreme Court justice, then there's a political price for vi- voting that person down. I mean, the ultimate check on this is the election in November. And that's going to be part, like, that's how but, it's going to go well, one way or the we, other. But we know, Emily, we already know the outcome. But we it know doesn't the outcome. matter that we the, know the outcome. The process I know, but, is still important. And also, I don't think we do know the outcome because I think that while, like, of course, the odds are with you and Obama won't get someone through probably we don't know the outcome you never know it could turn out that this is like deeply politically unpopular that the left wakes up to the importance of the Supreme Court which conservatives have understood for decades um, and really mobilized around and that the political price is too high they don't want to sacrifice these five Republican senators running for re-election in blue states and the political calculus changes it's not probably going to happen but it's possible and that's what this process is for you know i bet a supreme court seat is worth more than five senators 
Maybe. I think that's right. It's 30 or 40 years and it's flipping the court. You might be completely right. But let's like we get to watch all of that happen. That's like that's the process. It's also uh, because the court is the court is hangs in the balance here. Republicans running in blue states have to worry about their own base, too. It's not a certainty how this would break. You also, we should add, have the additional fun here that the sitting president filibustered the nomination of Judge Alito. On ideological grounds. I mean, there was no other reason to vote against Judge Alito. Just as Republicans will filibuster whoever the president puts forward on ideological grounds. Right. Right. I mean, Justice Alito is very right. Like, he is over there on the right spectrum. He's the most conservative voting justice, or at least he was a year or two ago. So that's a little different from someone who appears to be a kind of centrist moderate. But yes, you're right. Well, it's hard to know how a centrist... And I mean, to me, what is exciting about this moment, of course, since I'm obsessed with the law and the court, is that people are thinking closely and a lot about the importance of the court. And that is going to be baked in in some way to the decisions they make about who to elect in November. And that's good. Like it accentuates the importance of this choice and the power that presidents have over the court and senators. But the the record that Alito has accumulated on the court can't be used as a defense for for Obama's decision to filibuster it before he was true. Although there was plenty of indication from Alito's um, record on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals that he was going to be super conservative, and from his days at Princeton, like he has turned into the kind of justice that was fairly predictable from his record. And my point is just that. You know, Obama and a lot of other Democratic senators didn't support him because they thought he was going to move to the court to the right. And indeed, he has. And if there are Republican senators who don't want to approve Obama's choice because they think that person will move the court to the left, maybe it's a lot to the left, like, you know, like staunch liberal. Or maybe the thing about Scalia's seat is that anyone is going to be to the left of Scalia who Obama would choose. So, like, right, right. That's their calculus. Yeah. But if since it's going to move the entire court to the left. Any Republican who turns down the nominee on ideological grounds is in the identical position to the, the one. No, the I don't think in. that's true. I think we're talking about it. Like, if I wish I could show this visually. So the the move from O'Connor to Alito is a significant move, but it's from the center to the right. The move from Scalia to some you know made up centrist is like a move from the right to the middle. It's probably a bigger move, but it's from a different place and to a different place. Does that make any sense? Yeah, but whether it's from a different place or to a different place, if you if your interest is in maintaining the ideological place the court is in, it's a much bigger move that it's now, it would go from being a Well, we don't know who Obama's choosing. It is certainly well, a potential big threat to the status quo. He's not going to pick somebody who's going to have a... He's not going to pick somebody who's going to keep it. Wait, but just O'Connor to Alito is a big shift. It has mattered a great deal in a number of really. Yeah, but it didn't shift the balance of the whole. But John, you can't. I mean, you you can argue on political grounds that the justification for Republican senators filibustering this is profound, and they will do it, and they will be supported for it. But I don't think you can say that every single filibuster is exactly Well, the good same. gracious, I would be crazy if I said that. Thank God I didn't. I also <laughs> said that elephants are, will not what, fly out of my implying. ears. You're implying. No, Among other things I didn't say is that cars are edible. You're, 
Oh, John, I'm saying that you're, it, you're implying you're implying that the the Alito filibuster is exactly the same as a filibuster would be for any putative no. centrist candidate. And I think that that's not that. I'm Emily's saying that the man who is the, the man who is nominating the new Supreme Court justice did what a number of Republicans are going to do for ideological and political reasons. And the differences are are indistinguishable. But they're not indistinguishable. So I don't, be, that's my argument with you. Also, you oh, have in easier re- time practical terms, of course, once Obama chooses someone and that person seems like you know, as liberal as Alito was or close, right? Like we're, we just, we're talking about a hypothetical middle person here. And so it's easier for me to argue with you. Uh, Let's talk for a second, Emily, about the the ruination that is going to come to that hypothetical candidate. We talked about this a little bit on our GabFest Extra this weekend. But See, I feel like you have scripted this whole thing out. Like, it, you're being too determinist. You don't know what's going to happen. This person could... Yes, I already know what the, the future is. The I can see the so future. So let's take Sonia Sotomayor. She took some knocks on her way to getting to the Supreme Court. Now, you're imagining this person's not going to get there. But even if Sotomayor had been voted down, she also became a hero in that process to a lot of people in the liberal base. And so this person that, may completely sure, be voted down. Sure, it sure. may turn out to be, you know, yes, they're just being like their Isaac being sacrificed on the mountain. But maybe there'll be some political payoff to that down the line. And maybe they'll emerge with something that will be like, you know, a good thing for them reputationally out of this process. I don't feel like it's so clear that it's like being asked to walk the well plank. of. The- yeah. Well, it's being asked, that. but but isn't it being asked to to not be to, to be nominated to not be to not Maybe. be on the Supreme Court? Maybe I really you like I think there is a chance that this person is going to get through, and even if it's small, it's such a huge amount of vast power. I mean, I think most people would be up for trying. And then the last thing is that it's possible this person, if this person really conducted themselves beautifully through the whole thing, they could end up getting renominated if the Democrats win the election in November. Depends how right. banged up well, they you know, are. That's Depends what true. happens. Yes, it that's could suck, the, uh, but it also could turn out to be really great. Who knows? That's the other th- thing that's a part of this, is if this doesn't happen or go through under uh, Obama's presidency, it means that the next presidency starts off with a basically massive ideological fight. Like, honeymoons are dying and are dead pretty much anyway. The, I feel like the end really logic point of where we are heading is that you don't get to— <laughs> fill a Supreme Court vacancy unless you are a president whose party is in control of the Senate and maybe even has filibuster proof control, which is really his control like, of 60 that's seats. Where these, yeah. I'm not saying we're yeah. there yet, but the the degree of polarization is taking us to that place. And that is alarming to me. This is this has been the plot scenario. I've been spinning us out for years. I've been saying like this particular scenario could leave us with an eight person court for years. All right. Well, instead of speaking in a hectoring tone of voice about how you've been telling us, tell us like what we should think about that. Yeah. Well, if prominent Democrats hadn't filibustered court nominees before, it would be easier for a Democratic president to say that filibustering their oh Supreme God. Court nominee. Well, would yes, be, true. This is yeah. we. Yes, the both the Democrats killed the Bork nomination over ideology, and that is the you know the, the original the, sin. The original sin. I don't even think it was a sin. Like that's the shift in which we start thinking of the court as political, in which it always was. But like that's when we wake up to that fact. Okay, true enough, but. And yet we are talking about uh, imagining scenarios in which we don't have a full Supreme Court for some extended periods of time. And that is new. I want to just comment in closing about this, that this episode is reminding me of how 
rigid and calcified the American system has become. Yes. The, the, we've seen with the, the, the Senate, the difficulties with the Senate, the difficulties passing legislation, the difficulty of nominating and approving a Supreme Court justice, the difficulties of getting the normal functioning of government to carry forward. Fact, I think you pointed this out, or maybe you or Dahlia pointed this out on the Gap Best Extra this weekend, that, that now the only possible nominees for the Supreme Court are come from this Mandarin class of a few judges and a few litigators who have a Supreme Court experience, that those are the only people who can even be considered. I fear we're reaching this, we are, we're sort of at the stage that, that, that like old imperial governments get with these crazy yes. rules and like nothing can happen and everything is calcified and it's just, it alarms me. Like, it's, we've become very rigid. Right. Also, it's one thing to have eight justices on the Supreme Court for one term or, like, one and a half terms. It's another thing to imagine that as, like, I mean, I realize I'm being a little jumping to conclusions here. But if you imagine that really extending out in time or becoming some kind of new norm, that's dysfunctional. <laughs> that is not going to work. All right. And now a word from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. How great would it be if the post office were open 24-7, it had no more limited hours, and you could get your mailing and shipping done right on your schedule? Now you can when you use Stamps.com. You can print postage whenever you need it right from your desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office. No more rushing there during your busy day. You can just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then your mail carrier picks it up. And you'll save money with Stamps.com, too, because you can get the exact postage the instant you need it. No more overpaying. And you can even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. So right now, if you sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code GABFEST, you'll get a special offer, a four-week trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GabFest. The South Carolina Republican primary is on Saturday, and who knows what will happen? Well, actually, John probably knows what will happen. But anyway, uh, polls, at least last time I looked at them, suggest Donald Trump is leading, maybe a bit less than he did before he started criticizing the Iraq war. Maybe Marco Rubio is rising. Maybe Cruz is doing well. I don't know. John, you moderated this wonderful debate in Greenville last weekend. So we will talk about the experience of that a bit in Slate Plus. But when you look at the polls, at least, what does South Carolina look like? Well, it looks like Donald Trump is uh, is doing well and appears to be headed uh, into winning if the behavior of the voters tracks the polls the way it did in New Hampshire. And if, in fact, he wins South Carolina, this will be kind of an amazing thing. He will have done so after being booed in two successive debates. He will have done so after embracing the idea that uh, or re-embracing the idea that George Bush lied to get uh, the United States into the war in Iraq and that he failed uh, before 9-11 to see the threats that were coming. As Peggy Noonan pointed out, that's code pink territory. And that's, of course, why code pink applauded Trump for what he said. And he did it in a state where there is some history for Bush, having defeated John McCain in 2000 in South Carolina by 12 points after losing to him by 18 in New Hampshire. So it would be a kind of an amazing thing if he did well in South Carolina after having done all that. And one final point is that Ted Cruz and Donald Trump have been in constant combat for a month. 
And if there's a state with 65% of evangelical or the voters in South Carolina are 65% are self-identified evangelicals, which means this is a state where they would be primed to listen to what Cruz would have to say about Trump's shortcomings. So if he won, despite all of that, it would suggest some real durability for his coalition. How is Cruz doing? Cruz has seemed, to my my not uh, intimate eyes, pretty quiet and not doesn't seem to be surging. But maybe I'm not paying attention enough. He is in the high teens. There are some polls that show Marco Rubio kind of neck and neck with him. It would be a real blow to Ted Cruz if he uh, if he came in third in South Carolina, because, again, it's a state that uh, where he should do well. A lot of conservatives, a lot of evangelicals. And it is a bit of a test to his larger Southern strategy, the Super Tuesday primaries on the first. Um, so it would not be good for him. Is Jeb having any success bringing, he brought his brother into town. He obviously has been lashing at Trump and being lashed back at by Trump. Is there any sense that this is actually registering in the polls? He's run also more ads in South Carolina um, than his opponents. It doesn't appear he's at, he's at sort of 10% behind Rubio. There, was, there were little signs, you know, that he might be getting a little purchase. I think it wasn't great that Nikki Haley went and, and supported Rubio. Endorsements don't matter much. If it did, Mitt Romney would have beaten Gingrich because Haley supported Romney in 12. I think it would have been helpful to kind of this story that Bush was trying to show of, like, you know, he did well in the debate and his brother was there and, you know, that he's got a little mojo in the state and that, that uh, punctured it a little. Emily, do you think— if Jeb finishes behind Rubio and Cruz that he's done, that that's it? Or does, do, will he continue? I mean, he will be done, whether he is willing to admit that and actually <laughs> get out. John, what do you think? I think I it's— I mean, wouldn't it make sense for him to go through March 15th in some sense? Like, it's not that far away? It's not that far away, but you don't, I think, want to come in potentially third in your own state. Emily, this whole line of attack, or it's not even a line of attack because Trump is doing himself. It's Trump's line of attack on Bush. But the Trump seizing the anti-war code pink, as John put it, the code pink left position, George W. Bush did not keep us safe, that we would have been better off had had Bush and Cheney just gone to the beach rather than invaded Iraq and Afghanistan. It's weird to hear your own uh, your own voices in your own head coming back to you from Donald Trump is the position <laughs> I find myself in. How does this still enable him to find purchase in the Republican Party. Why is why is he not being perceived as code pink? Why is this perceived as a position of that is still a valid position for a Republican candidate to take and still win Republican votes? Isn't the whole lesson of Trump's candidacy that there is a much more fractured voting population for the Republican Party than the Republican establishment would suggest that there's there is just isn't actually an orthodoxy about all kinds of issues that I thought there was one on. And there are all these people who didn't usually vote Republican, didn't usually vote at all, who are showing up for Donald Trump, and they're changing what is acceptable to say and to not say and what positions you can take. Right, or that maybe that the that it's okay to be, as long as you're a nationalist, as long as you're an America supremacist. Yeah, that's a good like, way to put it. If you couch it. whatever you're doing as America's supremacy, then you can do whatever you want. That that's the... Thing. So Trump isn't attacking the idea that America is the greatest country in the world and should do whatever it wants in the world. He's just saying it was done really poorly in this case. And also there are a lot of Republicans who I think are horrified by him and aren't supporting him. And some people who are turned off by this particular stance, it's just that that's not going to prevent him from winning. 
just to be back to your point about America and the world, actually Trump is pretty, I mean, he's much less interventionist as a general matter than Rubio. So this is a right. part of a larger philosophical view. Um, Trump is kind of where Cruz is in terms of let's not really replace Assad. It was a mistake to replace Hussein, sort of a mistake to, you know, get Mubarak out of there, shouldn't have gone into Libya. There is more here than just failures of the past. It's a larger philosophy about whether America should be engaged in the world overseas in a in an interventionist way. Right. Right. But I guess I guess the point I was making, maybe maybe I'm maybe I put this wrong, was more like that you're right Trump is 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 less engaged in this aggressive way in the world but he's he also always says oh America's the best and if we did engage if we, if we engaged in a Trump administration we would win it's just right. so he he just rhetorically talks up American strength yes. without actually as a policy matter you know favoring anything right all right last bit on this Republican segment is this tweet that Jeb Bush put out he tweeted a picture of his handgun which had his name monogrammed on it, Governor Jeb Bush, and then a single word, America. This tweet was mocked. It enraged enraged liberals, enraged gun opponents. It's it enraged enraged leftists in the rest of the world. I mostly saw the rage. I didn't see whether there was a kind of support for it, and people thought that's great. Was this a wise move, Emily? Well, first of all, from correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure he even knew about the tweet. I wondered that. Too. Right. So I that was, first of all, I mean, I bet he doesn't control his own Twitter account. And I thought that was like, I'm not sure that he should have revealed at that moment that he didn't even know about this thing he'd done, because the way to do it is to own it and to say, yeah, I'm going after gun own. You know, I'm standing with gun owners and everyone should tweet the pictures of their guns back at me. This is America. We have a right to bear arms. We fought hard for it. There's like a whole Second Amendment vein to be mined here. And of course, there's going to be a backlash against it. But it seems like a smart move for Jeb Bush, whose problem is that he doesn't seem forceful and really manly. so desperate. I guess so. But, you know, people were tweeting back pictures of their guns at him. I feel like there's a world of people for whom this is appealing and he needs to appeal to them. You think it just seems mockable and pathetic? Well, it just seems like that this this is not his brand. This is the the brand of a kind of angry, gun marinated, furious set of voters (laughs) who represent a significant (laughs) chunk of voters. But they aren't. Are they the, clinging the only to their voters. guns and their religion? David? Yes, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm not running for president. Yeah, the set of people for whom the gun ownership and gun identity is like absolutely critical, and they tend to be—they're very upset about President Obama's America, and they want a level of anger out of their candidates that—that that I don't think Jeb Bush is particularly good at representing. I don't think th- those are not the only voters that exist in in the Republican electorate, even though they are the clearly the like the most uh, active at the moment. And I don't know that he, I don't know that he can win in that by playing in that sandbox. If he can bait responses like the kind you just gave (laughs) and that turn him into, I think you're right on just on, if there had been no reaction, probably wouldn't have mattered that much. But to the extent that it elicited this focus and reaction and mocking from the left, that actually might, help yeah. him in some but, tiny but little way it might help but, him in a tiny little way but that but, but almost not... imperceptible i mean i don't think a picture of a tweet matters for jeb bush's campaign one way or the other uh, voting's on saturday in south carolina and in nevada right yeah and so we will have do, can you give like like the 15 seconds nevada who 
is Hillary going to win it? Is she? Well, if she, she doesn't, that's a problem because it would me it would suggest that Sanders had found some way to to reach out to non-white voters, depending on the composition of the electorate and if they end up going and voting for him. If it's true that he can then reach out to non-white voters, that's been one thing people said he couldn't do. What I wonder quickly about the Democratic race is whether Hillary Clinton is in the sort of Mitt Romney position, which is like even if she wins South Carolina by 18 points, people will say, oh, well, she was supposed to win it. And and then and she'll that didn't happen with Romney, by the way. He lost to Gingrich. But in other words, the um, expectations for her are a little wacky. And so when Obama won South Carolina after losing New Hampshire, it was a huge comeback and he trounced her. If Hillary Clinton has a big victory in South Carolina, nobody's going to react to it in the big way that they did for Obama, even though she might win by, you know, a huge margin. Now, he did win by a gargantuan margin there. But I'm just wondering whether she's going to have to basically win a whole bunch of states before anybody says, "Okay, well, maybe she's not going to lose the nomination. All right. Now let's hear a word from our next sponsor, which is ZipRecruiter.com. Are you hiring but not sure where to find the best candidates? That is a situation I find myself in often as a business owner and CEO. And I can tell you that your company is only as good as the people you hire. And I can also tell you that posting your job in one place is not enough to find quality candidates. But when you're short-staffed, there is no time to deal with the dozens and dozens of different job sites until now. Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to 100-plus job sites with a single click and be instantly matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes. Just post once, and within 24 hours, watch your candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. ZipRecruiter has been used by more than 400,000 businesses, and you can try it right now for free. Getting the right people for your company is critical. Try ZipRecruiter and get your perfect candidate before they go to somebody else. And today you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest to try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. San Bernardino shooter, murderer, terrorist Syed Farouk had an iPhone 5C. It was owned by his employer. He had enabled some security measures on it. After two months, the FBI has still not been able to open it because of these security measures, they fear that if they they try to open it too many times, they will wipe out all the data on the phone. They have therefore asked Apple, or actually not asked, they have gone to court to try to require Apple to create a, well, we'll talk about what it is that Apple would have to create, to create some software that would allow the FBI to skirt the security provisions, protections on the phone, to break into the phone, to allow them to get access to the data. Apple is fighting this order and is resisting in in court and resisting in the court of public opinion. We're going to talk about this really fascinating, fascinating issue about privacy, data, government, and crime with Will Aremus, who is Slate's senior technology writer. Will, welcome to GabFest. Have you been? You've been on the show before. Yeah. Thanks. I've been on once. This is my this is my second time. So Apple uh, appears to be denying or trying to fight a court order, a lawfully issued court order refusing to help the government investigate a terrible criminal activity, willfully telling the FBI to, to go screw itself and endangering national security, right? That's what's happening here. <laughs> yeah, if you ask a lot of people, that's exactly what's happening here. What Apple says is happening here is that it is standing up to what it believes is a case of government overreach. It says, look, 
if you come to us with a court order asking us to turn over evidence that we have access to, to aid in a criminal investigation, we'll do that. We do that all the time. What you are asking us to do is something different, something bigger. And they're basically telling the government, you do not understand the Pandora's box that you're opening here. What you're asking us to do is to, to develop a different version of our iOS operating system that would basically enable people to hack iPhones that were previously unhackable. Once we've created that, it's going to get out. You know, so we don't know how, we don't know where, but once that exists, criminal hackers will try to find a way to use it. Uh, once the United States has compelled uh, Apple to do that and Apple has complied, you know that China's going to ask Apple to do that so that China can get into anybody's iPhone anytime it wants. Uh, so they are, they're saying no. They're saying, they're saying this, is, this is a bigger deal than you realize. We're not going to do it because it would compromise our entire security system. Here, here's what confuses me about this. <laughs> Aren't they two separate cases? So one is the phone. It's the specific phone itself that's could Apple, if they were forced to, get into that phone. That's one thing. And then the question is whether they build, going forward, they build a backdoor so that in future cases like this, it's not such a production. And that, it seems to me to be, if you build a backdoor, the bad guys will use it as well as the law enforcement. But that's a separate issue, right, from the actual specific phone that was used in the San Bernardino shootings. Well, yes and no. It depends how you look at it. So, so first of all, I want to say that anybody who thinks that this case is simple Anybody thinks that the answer is easy just does not understand everything that's going on here because it's, it's incredibly complex. There is a disagreement over what the FBI is asking for. Apple says it's asking for a backdoor, that, that, that creating the software that would allow the FBI to hack even this one particular phone would amount to a backdoor. The government is saying, no, that's, it's not a backdoor. You know, it's just... It's just letting us, it's letting us break into this one phone, but, but you would build it in a way that it can only be used on this one phone. Will, on that issue, one of the things that I read, I mean, this seems to me, this is so complicated. I read this. It was really fun reading about it, but I don't understand a lot of it. But one of the claims that, that I think the FBI, is maybe both at the FBI and Apple and even some technology writers are making, is that this is something that you could do to an Apple that's a 5C because it doesn't have particular kinds of protections, but that any actual phone, you know, anything with iOS after iOS 8 maybe, you couldn't even do this to it. That actually Apple and Google have now developed phones that even if even in the in, in a speculative future where the government demands this, you literally could not do it. Apple and Google cannot break into their own phones because of the way they've now separated some of the encryption from from other aspects of the phone. Yeah, it's actually Apple especially that has made a point of this. And it, it, we're talking just about uh, iPhones and iOS devices. There's both a software issue and a hardware issue. So the background for this, if you want to go back to the beginning, look back to 2013 when, the, when all the Snowden stuff came out. The allegations were that Apple and these other tech companies stood by and complied with these NSA snooping programs that just hoovered up everybody's personal data uh, willy-nilly. Apple took a lot of flack for that. And Apple made what I think was a conscious decision at that time that we are going to become a company that really does stand up for users' security and privacy. So the next operating system that Apple came out with in 2014, that was iOS 8, included these security features that were supposed to make it so that Apple couldn't break into a device even if it wanted to. But 
there's an extra feature that makes the devices really impossible to break into that was included on the new hardware going forward from there. So, so again, now we're not talking about the software, we're talking about the hardware. So an iPhone 5S, an iPhone 6, all the newest iPhones have a separate little computer inside the device called the Secure Enclave. Yeah, such a and, great sinister and, and, name. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So the Secure Enclave has to be working in concert with the operating system, with the passcode that the user enters. All three of those things have to go together, and that's what makes it so that if this had been an iPhone 6 rather than an iPhone 5C, Apple really just flat out would not have been able to comply with this this request. So because I, it was that a illustrates for me a fundamental point, which is that this is about the pendulum swinging very far in the other direction. So you're totally right to go back to the Snowden revelations, Will. And the thing about the Snowden revelations is what we learned was that all these major tech companies were giving up huge amounts of everyone's data, anything that was asked for, didn't matter whether the government had a warrant or much proof at all. They were just handing it all over. And now we have a very different situation in which, let's take this specific case. There is a court order in an investigation um, about a particular one phone. I don't really believe Apple in its, you know, how big a backdoor it's being asked to create. I don't really believe them that they're going to create this magic key that then will make everything hackable. But if that is true, that's totally fucked up. They shouldn't have created a system that was so fragile that it could be hacked without anyone knowing it if just one time they let the government bust into one person's phone. I mean, what if this was an ongoing investigation and there was a co-conspirator at large and we wanted to know where they were and what they were doing and we thought this iPhone would give us information about that? Of course the government should be able to get into no, that phone unless no, you think that no, everything in your phone absolutely not you're wrong that is not the case it is not the case that if there's an ongoing investigation the government should be able to do whatever they it's want not to whatever any she device. Wants. it's not saying whatever you just said nor is she saying that every filibuster is you, the same oh john she's don't go, saying john, in a specific limited that. case she sa- she said i i cannot remember exactly the line you used but your implication was that they that they should be apple should be compelled to Go along with By that. I do not judge. think that is the case. Yes, yeah, I but, do but, think but that judge there cannot... is something called reasonable search and seizure, where in the process of an investigation, the government gets to ask to turn over people's computers. And this is a computer. They, they can turn it's over... not really a telephone. The only way in which Apple's position on this makes sense to me is if you think that every piece of data on your iPhone is like a spoken word in a telephone conversation or just in the air, then yes, it gets to disappear. But if the data on your phone is like letters or email, then of course the government, if with a judicial order, should have access to it for an ongoing investigation. And they do. No, Emily, no, it shouldn't. No, that's not right. We're not it is not the crimes case. anymore. That is not the case. The government does not get to use any method to solve a crime. It is absolutely the case that the government can demand the production of this phone. They can say this phone, you have to deliver this phone, and we now we need to take a look at it. But And they can, they can seize possession of the phone. It does not imply that Apple then has an obligation to create some software that allows the government to look at it. If the government wants to try to figure it out on its own, the government can try to figure it out. But it cannot compel private citizens and private companies to take any measure possible to produce that information. They need to find the information some other way. The government had to prove to a judge that there was no alternative means to get in this phone without Apple's help. They tried to get in without Apple. They're afraid all the data is going to race if they 
um, you know, mess up the password more than 10 times. And they also had to show that they were asking Apple for reasonable technical assistance. The judge thought this was reasonable. It's totally within Apple's rights to appeal. Let's see what happens after that. But at some point, if the courts rule that this is reasonable assistance and this is a legitimate aspect of the investigation, then Apple has to throw in the towel. No, but Emily, this would all be much more persuasive if the government had just hadn't spent the last 15 years doing all kinds of chicanery within the legal system, circumventing the legal system, and then even within the legal system, doing all kinds of dubious ethically suspect things to snow judges, to snow the public about what they were doing with security. It would be a lot more persuasive if the government hadn't consistently abused this power for the past 15 years. If they then came to, to the public and said, you know what, this is a very important case. We have tried every other measure. This is the only thing we can do. Can you please help us with it? The fact that the government has been so abusive about this means that they do not deserve they have not earned the right to tell people and to persuade a judge who doesn't know anything about technology to begin with to persuade a judge that they that they have the right to compel Apple to do to do this. It's just it is not persuasive to me. Will, sorry, you wanted to speak. All right, there are two to me. There are two really interesting issues here. One of which uh, Emily just touched on, and, and and David touched on, which is the distinction between asking Apple to hand over evidence that it has access to, and compelling a Apple to use its expertise as a software development company to develop specific software that enables its own security system to be hacked. Apple is arguing that is outside of the scope of what the government should be able to order us to do. We don't have evidence. We don't have access to the evidence. They're asking us to come up with some new software that would enable them to hack our own security system. The, uh, the other issue I think is, is really interesting and relevant here is the question of, is a company allowed to create an unhackable device. That is what scares people in the security community here. The implication of what the FBI is asking of Apple is that a company does not have the right to build a device that can't be hacked. And, and people in the security community think that that's just a you, really dangerous You know, there thing. were locks, there were physical locks that could not be broken for a century. There were literally there were locks that could not be broken. Did the government say you can't make those locks? No, they thought you know what those locks are good. They're going to protect. Was there bank a case? Bolts. Was there a case in which the unbreakable lock would have led to information that was in a relevant case? This is, we're talking about a specific case here, not a general principle. But also, can no, I get, but I think precedent matters, John. It's like what the FBI wants is the precedent well, to be able to demand it. to demand that they'll use the specific incidents. They, well, I'm sure they do want this information, than, but they want it for precedential value. Yeah, but that's a different point than your analogy. Um, so I got a question here. I didn't if make an analogy. Apple is claiming what analogy? you made the analogy that. to the locks that could never I, no, be broken, was, and the fact that, a, that the government that never of, asked if they could go in. That was them. a point of fact. I was just saying. It, to, to yeah, but Will, then you said, did point, the government ever? Point, did the Will's point like do the, what, is there such a thing as a, a technology which can't be hacked? Yes, this existed for a century. Yeah, I know, but then you made the leap and said, did anybody ever ask? Whether they could go into those locks, no, because the government thought it was a good thing. That's what the thing with which I took issue. But here's a here's a bigger question. I don't understand how the 5C can be different than the future generations of phones, on the one hand, and then have Apple claim that the software unlocking device that they would use to get what's in the 5C would then affect all the future phones. If they're so different, 
then why is something you create for a 5C going to ruin and create a backdoor to all the future phones which have been built in such a different way? How is that possible? That's a really good question. There's a, there's a great post from Ben Thompson in his Stratechery newsletter that, that gets to that issue. He's asking, did Apple draw the line in the sand too soon? I mean, couldn't they have just gone along with this order, said, okay, look, we'll help you unlock this 5C, knowing that the loophole that allows them to do that has already been closed and that this can't happen on future generations of the phone. That's part of what leads me to believe that Apple, you know, I think Apple really does believe that it would be problematic if they were if they they developed the software to hack this particular phone. But I also think there's a little bit of grandstanding involved here on Apple's part. I think Apple loves being seen as the company that will go to the mat to protect its users' privacy and security. Well, but this is what gets to the precedential question. This is why it's important. If the government can make a case that under the circumstances that it is outlined, using a law from 1789, it can compel a technology company to create technology, new technology, in order to aid in a criminal investigation, that that makes it a much easier act for them to, to for the FBI in the future to demand this be built into things or to go to Congress and say, Congress, you need to legislate that this must be built into things. Yeah, and, 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 getting, and ba- getting back to that question. That's why the precedent yeah. matters here. Getting back to that question of the pendulum that, that, that Emily raised, I mean, that's a really good question. I think the law enforcement community does believe that the pendulum has swung too far with these devices and these types of software that have strong encryption that can't be broken even with a search warrant and a criminal investigation. But the security community is afraid that if you don't allow that Type of encryption, the pendulum swings even farther in the other direction. If the government can compel tech companies to develop software to break into any possible encryption, then all of a sudden there's there's like like no privacy and security at all. All right, we have to end it there. Will Remus, thanks for joining us for this nice contentious discussion. Thanks so much. And now a word from our next sponsor this week, which is Harry's.com. So I have been away from home uh, for a few days, and I left my Harry's razor at home, and I'm super scratchy this morning and I'm irritable because my Harry's razor is a critical part of my grooming. It is a wonderful heft to it. I love the blades. I love how easy it is to get replacements for them. I love my Harry's shave cream and I'm I'm bereft this week without it with me. So I am I'm very sad. And if you're a GapFest listener, you know that that Harry's is a critical part of my shaving regimen. And that's because Harry's makes great razors, German-engineered five-blade cartridges. You get a close, comfortable shave. You get no cuts, no burn. If you could see my my smooth neck and smooth, smooth, non-beardy parts of me after I shave, you would see that. The quality is guaranteed, and you get a full refund if you're not happy. And the price is great. They have factory direct prices. They cut out the middleman, ship right to your door, which means they can sell their blades at half the price of the leading brand. So why pay $32 for an eight-pack of blades when you can get them for half the price at Harry's? And you can get the Harry's Starter Set, which is an amazing deal. For just $15, you get razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three blades. And GabFest listeners, we will give you $5 off your first order if you use the promo code GABFEST. So stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter code GABFEST at checkout. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're attempting to decrypt your child's iPhone that they've, that they've uh, encrypted and you have a drink to help you decrypt it, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? My chatter is just a, is an endorsement of um, this narrator, a fantastic narrator of the P.G. Woodhouse 
books on Audible. His name is um, Jonathan Cecil. He's just like, in my head, if I could imagine what the perfect reader of a P.G. Woodhouse novel would be, it would be him. And he's done dozens of them. And um, it's just, uh, it's a delight. All right. Emily, what's your chatter? I am really interested in a story in the Wall Street Journal about how some employers are trying to mine the health data of their employees to figure out which workers might get sick, who might get pregnant. There's something alarmingly big brother about this. The employers can't do it themselves. They have to go through um, these data mining companies. And employees, it seems like, are supposed to have an option of opting out before they provide all this information. But I, you know, it, this story on the one hand, this seems like such a terrible idea that your boss would find out even in the aggregate that, you know, there are employees who are likely to be pregnant. And so we're going to like send them information about OBGYNs. It all just seems really troubling. But I guess the motivation for it is that there's so much wasted money on healthcare and that this would be some kind of, you know, nanny nudge way of pushing people toward healthier behavior. It's by Rachel Emma Silverman um, in the Wall Street Journal this week. This is yet another reason why employer-based health insurance is insane. It's terrible. Good point. Uh, my chatter very quickly also is there <laughs> the very funny incident with Marco Rubio this week where he put out an ad, Morning in America ad, obviously evoking um, Ronald Reagan's Morning in America campaigns and the opening shot of it which was showed a a boat making its way across a a harbor turned out to be a shot of vancouver canada tugboat in vancouver canada you could see if you zoomed in you could see the canadian flag flapping on the back of this boat but i what i actually really liked was rubio's response the campaign took it in very good humor and joked about it and didn't appear to go into a tizzy it was just it was a nice moment of a mistake made and taking the mistake lightly but it was funny our intern is El Biscard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank with Zach Dinerstein helping out today. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. GabFest is part of the Panoply Network, and you can check out all the Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, and our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week after South Carolina. And we have another sponsor this week, CNN's Race for the White House. From executive producers Kevin Spacey and Dana Brunetti comes a new CNN original series, Race for the White House. CNN's riveting six-part docuseries, Race for the White House, digs deep to reveal the most controversial tactics and game-changing strategies used throughout presidential elections in American history. From Andrew Jackson to Bill Clinton, followed 12 presidential hopefuls through six cutthroat races that changed the way we vote and how campaigns are run. Uncover the real reasons some became powerful while others failed. With disastrous debates, PR mishaps, bribes, and schemes, Race for the White House will challenge the way you think about American politics. The Race for the White House series premieres Sunday, March 6th at 10 p.m. Eastern on CNN.
Hi, I'm Ezra Klein, Editor-in-Chief of Vox.com, and I've got a new podcast on the Panoply Network. It is called The Ezra Klein Show, which I'm never going to be able to say without feeling like a terrible, terrible narcissist. But it's long-form, intimate, real conversations with newsmakers, with politicians, policymakers, journalists, business leaders, people who are influencing the world in fascinating and important ways. We talk about what they think, why they think it, what they believe. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk with these people, and I hope you enjoy it too. You can find it wherever fine podcasts are given away for free over the internet. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.